Hey, welcome to Scratching the Surface. I'm Jared Fuller, and this is my podcast about design criticism and practice. On this week's episode, I am talking with the designer and artist Daniel Etok. Daniel studied design at Ravensburn College and earned his MA from the Royal College of Art. He's worked with the Walker Arts Center, Channel 4, and co-founded the online portfolio builder Index Hibbet. In 2008, Princeton Architectural Press published a monograph of his work called Imprint, and this is when I first discovered Daniel. I have a very vivid memory of this book coming out when I was in college 10 years ago now and being just completely confused and fascinated by its contents and by Daniel's work. When Daniel was in college, he discovered conceptual art, and his practice has expanded beyond traditional graphic design to include a variety of conceptual works and practices that range from graphics to installations to books to drawings. And I I remember being in college just being very fascinated by this and seeing nothing like it, and I've been a fan ever since. So in this conversation, I asked Daniel about that and how he thinks about his own practice. We talk about how he started in graphic design and how discovering Lucy Lepard's book, Six Years, uh, really changed his life and changed his work. We talk about his resistance to labels and labeling his work and how he incorporates his art into every aspect of his life. His work is just so fascinating to me, and I found this conversation just completely interesting and fun. Remember, if you're a fan of the podcast and want to help support it, you can become a member for $5 a month or $50 a year to receive an exclusive monthly newsletter with additional content and episode previews. These memberships really help keep the podcast going. I just appreciate all of your support and hope you enjoy this conversation with Daniel Etok. all the way back if we can just to start and set this up um did you study graphic design in school is that what your is that kind of like your early interest you know i've been listening when you since you sent me the email i think i've probably listened to a dozen of okay. your podcasts so i was scrolling Uh-oh. through your list of and of course i listened to all the people who are new so a lot you've interviewed a lot of my friends yeah and it was really nice because some of those friends i haven't spoken to for I don't know, 12 months or, or sometimes even longer. So when I listened to the podcast, it was a way of me catching up with them, but <laughs> yeah, very oh, one-sided. So I, I feel so I know what they're up to, yeah. but they have no idea what I'm up to. So it's been this kind of, there's been an imbalance. Well, hopefully they'll so, listen to yours then. Uh, well, maybe, and maybe, so the conversation can keep going. <laughs> yeah. But there was lots of, um, I kind of heard very similar beginnings, lots mm-hmm. of people describing that they were children I think yourself, what you described seeing typography yeah. in supermarkets. And yeah. So it's got me thinking. So I, I tried to come a bit prepared thinking, well, how did I really get into graphic design? <laughs> I love that. And, you know, I, st- I still don't know. I have no idea. Um, and to be honest, I don't think I've ever been interested in graphic design. I had a thought about that, but keep going. Well, maybe you can, t- you can kind of enlighten me kind of why I'm <laughs> in graphic design. Because I, I kind of... Um, I think as a child, I was really persistent. I was, I didn't like to be taught. I wanted to discover how to do things myself. Yeah. And so I, have, I had a lot of traits, which I recognize now looking back that are still part of my, I guess, way of being or personality. And a lot of people told me when I was a child that I was really good at drawing but deep down, I knew that I wasn't, but I could fake it. I could make a drawing that they would think was good, but yeah. really, technically, it's not very good. I had friends at the same age that could draw way better. So I could kind of see that I'm not, I'm not actually not very good at drawing. And I was never really good at writing because I'm dyslexic. So I always struggled mm. with language. Um, I'm also not very good at maths. Um, and I wasn't interested in sports. So I, I kind of, <laughs> right. but I had friends in all these different areas. So I was friends with uh, kind of the the clever kids at school. Right. This is probably like the age of, say, between like 11 and 15, this period. So I had friends that were the rough kids, the ones from the poor families, the clever kids, and the rebel kids, the right. ones that kind of formed. I kind of had like a big, connection with lots of different types of people um and 
I don't know what this has got to do with graphic design, but I think it's it's still connected with my practice. I mean, I think I'm interested in in the world, not so much in graphic design. And graphic design has given me a set of tools or processes or ways of organizing and seeing things that enable me to to live in the world in a productive way. So it means that I can um, I can organize things, so I don't need to remember things. I can mm-hmm. research things, so I don't need to again remember things or log data i can kind of access it when i need it mm-hmm. i can i'm good at select i'm not really good at photography but i'm very good at selecting the picture that is the best from the hundred that i might have taken so all these skills are somehow part of graphic design so graphic design just prepared me with a toolkit that i can lead a, an interesting life I, this is interesting because i i feel the same I, I feel similar to what you're talking about in that to me, graphic design has become the just like almost exactly what you just said, a way to kind of see the world or a way to understand or make sense of everything else. And 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 as a high school student and, and even now, graphic design was a way that introduced me to all of these other things, whether it was certain writers, whether it was certain films, whether it was certain music um but the the reason i'm kind of saying this is i'm curious how how you found that graphic design was that thing for you like where did that term or this idea of this is a thing you could do where'd that come into your life um well my my dad was a designer oh okay and my mum was a typographer oh all right there we go So, so that's I guess it was on my radar from being a child. Yeah. Um, and I never, I never rebelled as a child. I never thought that it, because I was, because it was in the house, that kind of way of being that I, um, when I left high school, I just went to college to study design, graphic design. And, and, just... and, and, and never even thought about I could do something else. It's just, this is what we do. This is what people do. How early was it that you started kind of feeling like you were pushing up against the limits of graphics. I mean, one of the first things you said is that you're not sure you were ever interested in it. How soon did you kind of come to that realization? Um, I think I entered it. it. Do you know, you can do lots of courses or you can read a book about how to, like if you read a cookery book, you don't think you're going to be a chef. You right. just read it because you, it kind of gives you new information, new ingredients, new combinations or techniques of things which would take a long time to discover on your own. So I think when I was studying graphic design, it was the same. It's almost like um, I could appreciate the tools and the methods mm. and thinking, oh, this will be great to apply into a, in a different context. I never thought, great, now I know how to do um, a book or now I know how to design this thing. Right. Um, so... Yeah, just I felt that part of me was in the right place because I was being given life skills. Yeah. Um, and when you're at college anyway, all the projects are, I think from my experience, a lot of the projects were, I don't like the word self-initiated, but I, I wasn't really responding to very many briefs. Most of the time mm-hmm. I was using the skills that were being taught, but then applying them to my observations and then the two things fit really well together and then i would have lots of outcomes um right and i could present them in crits and because i was really nervous in presenting i found i would try to be as objective and clear as possible and concise i didn't need to there was no poetry i would i could kind of explain one plus one equals two and that's the answer right or i could say you know half of eight is three and everyone will be like, what do you mean it's three? So well, if you take a number eight and if you cut it vertically in half, the shape that is left appears like a number three. So it's three. <laughs> so I, so I, would, I would start to discover these um, kind of paradox or conundrums and then that became part of this logic. So I was really like almost like a scientist trying to break something, a creative problem down to like some kind of scientific conclusion yeah. But with this kind of, um, I don't know, like I would try to break that logic with a bit of um, irony or 
wit or something to challenge it and then there'll be this kind of outcome that was part rational part bonkers and then that, <laughs> that, that's my work well how i mean while you're in school i'm i'm kind of hearing you say this thinking about my own undergraduate education where our projects were something like you know design a logo like make up a company and design a logo for it or here's a bunch of content design a, a book for it or design a magazine were, were those kind of the assignment like how did you I, I guess the question I'm asking is is like how did you kind of pair these kind of experiments you were doing within the uh constraints of a design program you know what I mean yeah. I, I do know what you mean, but I've got such a bad memory that I, okay. I find it easier to talk about work I've made recently than okay. going back to being a student. There, there are still student projects that I – the funny thing is I don't know if I remember making them. I just remember – because I've talked about old work so often in lectures that I don't know right. whether I'm remembering my own stories rather than the right. reality. Yeah. So – but I know that I made works, I think, in my degree. Okay. So, so I've done – I did a three – basically, I did a two-year – it was called a BTEC. So that's from being 16 up until 18. Okay. And then at 18, I did a degree okay. at Ravensbourne College. Right. And my degree was, um, in a way, that's my proper education. So that's leaving home, moving mm-hmm. to, it wasn't London, just outside of London, but it felt that that's where my education started. And like the assignments in the first year were very basic, like really, like, yeah. Just basic typography or, right. or even before typography, it was moving like centimeter squares around a grid to tr- to make asymmetric compositions. Right, right. Yeah, I remember and, those. And I loved it. You know, I, I and I think it was only in the third year that I started to want to have the understanding of um, making hierarchies and asymmetric mm. compositions and and basic typography that I started to then add like a conceptual layer. Yeah, and then then I went to the RCA, and I was at the RCA for two years, and really that's when everything kind of fell in place. So I was able to have the skills to compose things graphically, but then I was I had the conceptual understanding to apply those skills to to things to observations, and I made lots of work that appeared like graphic design. Like I started to make posters and greeting cards and right. books, but my motivation wasn't I wasn't taking they weren't commissioned in a, in a typical sense where there's a client saying, can you make this? And here is the content. I would build something from scratch as a response to the world. Right. And use, and use my design skills to, as the glue that kind of bound everything together. This is some, I, this is a theory that I have that I kind of want to run by you just based on what you're saying. It's reminding me of something else that I've been thinking about lately that I think your work fits nicely in. And I've been thinking about self-initiated graphic design projects and how boring a lot of them are. Um, They're either projects that are, and I'm guilty of this also, they're either about the designer, they're, they're kind of very personal or biographical, or they're projects that are about design And there's not a lot of conceptual interest there. And it just feels like a client project that was done for the designer themselves. And your work is not like that. And your work is very, uh, it's very idea driven first before it, before it takes on a formal quality, it seems very rooted in these ideas. And I watched the um, the Walker Art Center talk that you gave, which I guess I think that was 2009. So it's almost 10 years ago. So I'm, I apologize for quoting something that you said 10 years ago. But you, you in that talk, you talked about discovering conceptual art uh, and conceptual artists while you were in school. And you had you. You, you had this phrase where you wanted to see if you could dematerialize design and I found that so profound and kind of exactly about this this thing that I've been wrestling with about the uh, almost superficial or lack of conceptual ideas in self-initiated projects and so I don't know if I have a question there other than I would love to hear you kind of talk about that a little bit yeah. more and if that kind of resonates with you at all yeah it, it does there's a lot lot of areas there to kind of yeah 
So yeah, the this the this word dematerialization. So that came from Lucy Lippard's book Six oh. Years: The Dematerialization of the Art Object. Oh, okay. And that was um, when I was doing my degree. I found that book in the first year, and I think I had it on permanent loan. <laughs> Right. For the whole college, it wasn't a book that was that was then in print. It is now, I think. Um, but I I didn't realise as a kid that all my creativity, regardless of what the outcome was, was really rooted in language, not in visual. Mm-hmm. So when I used to go to museums with my mum and dad, like if we if we travel a bit, we got we came to New York when I was a kid. I went to MoMA, I went to the right. Guggenheim, and I'd be seeing all these kind of iconic works. And I always felt on the outside, I couldn't fall into a painting. I couldn't stand in front of a painting and be struck by it and love mm-hmm. it. I always thought, well, it's just it's just color and texture and form and it, it looks okay, but it's so subjective. It might, yeah. I, I didn't, I wasn't using those words, but I just, I, I couldn't, that's, that's all it was. And then when I started to recognize that art had a conceptual side and that conceptual art ha- was almost purely language based it wasn't about yeah it's the material side right then i then i fell into it to- i totally like, i loved it i was rereading this book i was kind of find, finding these conundrums of works that were described just so beautiful and like uh, and then it made me realize that actually my process is the same so i'm resolving problems that very often are material or visual mm-hmm, mm-hmm. because i'm studying graphic design but the way that I'm arriving at those decisions is language-based. And that's why I thought it'd be interesting to chat with you because I, you talk so much about critical writing and writing as part of your practice. Yeah. I don't write as a writer. I don't, I don't make text to be read. Right. But, I, but writing, it's not really writing, but wor- I guess words or language is a big part of what I do. Um, it's just that the results is not a text or an essay. It's, um, well, it's... it's it can be anything. It can be a sculpture. It can be a drawing. It yeah. can be an installation. It comes out in different ways, but I think the the process is is I'm guessing quite similar, just because it's language based. Yeah, I mean that's you hit on exactly kind of why I wanted to talk to you too. Is that I I sensed in your work a certain uh, interest in language and a certain. Uh, the work is so rooted in these ideas, but it comes out not as a text. It comes out as objects. And I'm, I, I'm curious, and I don't mean to be so reductive, but could you talk a little bit about that process of playing with these ideas? How, how do you start to connect ideas to forms or to materials uh, when I it's something that's, that's kind of language-based like that? Yeah. I don't. Tr- they just are connected. So it's, it's <laughs> yeah. so it's like it, yeah. I have no choice. But if um, so, like an example. So if I don't make it, it'll just stay in my head. So then it's then it doesn't exist. Oh, interesting. It exists in my head. So so I have to put it out. And by and there's usually only one way, one form that can express that mm-hmm. I mm-hmm. that idea or that thought. So it's um. Oh, what's an example that I can use quickly? So, do you know? I just sent you that picture of the toilet roll. Yeah, so, yeah, so yeah. I was so I'm interested in kind of turning things. Quite often, my work conceptually turns things inside out, right. or turns turns something upside down. So, a toilet roll is the center of a, or the the tube on the inside of a toilet roll. The the paper is always wound around the outside. Right. And of course it is, because when you need toilet paper, you, it unravels. So then I thought, well, if it's the opposite of that would be to have the, to- the paper on the inside. And this, this connects with a joke. There's an American uh, comedian called Stephen Wright. Oh, yeah. And I, I kind of, I'm fascinated by a lot of his work as a comic but like he talked about why do you put the wrapper on a straw on the inside on the outside sorry when it's the inside you want to keep clean <laughs> I, I fucked the joke up sorry right right <laughs> so, i know what you so, mean yeah so this um <laughs> this is the same it's kind of like the it's an impossible object the paper's no cold on the inside but as a it becomes like a poem or like a poetic object mm-hmm, like it's mm-hmm. totally useless but it's it, when you hold it and see it, it's very familiar did you try to when you when you kind of discovered 
conceptual art and discovered this process and, and kind of connecting that to the own way you were working. I'm, I'm curious how much you tried to do that in a graphic design context. Like what was, did, did you have a, any sort of obligation or responsibility or feeling that because you were studying design, you had to embed these ideas in design work or how did that kind of moving away from design into something that's more art-based come about? Quite early on, when I left college, I or ju- even during college, I decided to only use like a a size paper, so okay. like A4, A5, mm-hmm. or bigger A. And if I designed a book, it would be on an A format. It was a way of kind of reducing the format of things to yeah. like a, a guide. I, I was also only using one typeface. Okay. A- accidents grotesque. I used that for everything, and I always use the same weight. Which was medium, so I, I, I like uh, I like extremes, I like everything or nothing, mm-hmm. or and but I also like the halfway points. Okay. So like the, it's kind of like the pivot of the two extremes. Right. So the medium made sense. So every, everything was in this, and then if the job had to be in color, then I would always get the client or a friend or somebody to choose the color. Okay. I would, I would never make that decision. So I had these kind of rules that would help me produce things, just so okay. I wasn't too indecisive. Mm-hmm. Um, and those rules were never really made public. They were just my own ways of being able to commit to a process that would result with an enco- with an outcome. Otherwise, I think I would have, uh, like, because color is so subjective, I would be. Yeah. Let's make it. Let's make it red. I don't like red. Okay, we can be blue, pink, orange. Right. It, can, it can be anything. And I, I didn't want to kind of waste time <laughs> yeah. fig, figuring that out. Um, yeah, I mean, I guess, I guess the, my question is, and you, you started to answer it, I, I guess I'm curious kind of ha- when I when I discovered your work, you were already much more, I don't mean to put this kind of false division between design and art, but you were m- much more doing self-initiated kind of conceptual art projects. And I was curious about before that, how you were able to kind of take some of these ideas and inject them into a design process when you had a client, um, and so you would you would make these rules I, to. Well, I th- I, th- that's about the process, I guess. But um, see, I don't see looking back now. I don't think the work I made for clients and the work I made for the world outside of a commission. I don't. I don't like the word self-initiated, but. Whichever type of work, for me, it's all one and the same thing. So I still think that the work I made for clients was a contribution right. in the same way. And it, and, it, and it was an artistic contribution. It was it, it did what they required it to do. But there was also lots of other things in it that mm-hmm. kind of, for me, then changed it. So it wasn't – I was never just um, – right delivering their message in the most, right. I don't know, succinct, digestible way. I, it might appear like that, but there'd be other things. I, I, I had other logics behind yeah. that surface. Um, so I, cause I, I was making a lot of, um, like I did a lot of work for channel four in right. like 2000, between probably 2001, 2005. So work on billboards and work that appeared mm-hmm. on television. And even though the, the formats or the mediums that were displaying this work were quite public. The works, they still felt like the type of thing that I would have, I don't know, made a small edition of. Like it was the same right. type of work. Right. Yeah. And uh, I didn't, I didn't mean to, I didn't, I, I didn't mean for that question to sound like it was uh, prioritizing one over yeah, the other, sure. but I was, I was kind of interested in those different contexts of, um, you know, when you're working with someone else or it's a collaboration or it's a client versus when it's a, a art project or a, a project yourself. And you almost don't see those as different. You know, the the process itself or, and even the output in some cases could be very similar. Yeah. But I guess, I guess, no, even the difference is even less because I'm finding that, you know, I've got this design education. I've got mm-hmm. this body of work that I've made. I'm still making work, but but everything I make is special. So whether it's making right. a lot of bread or making kombucha or even going for a run or 
making like I'm fascinated in in being I guess in like DIY or understanding mm-hmm. like learning new things or approaching things like right. I don't know what I'm doing like from as a as an amateur and um so so life is just rich in all those areas and right. I, I yeah everything feeds into each other and it's all inseparable it's like one big murky soup of stuff so so what is your what is your work now like what how, how do you spend your day what um what is that that kind of output like these days um like, like a typical day like i do you know i've recently in the last six months i've been running a lot i love running and so that's a big part of my like i've I've managed to get into a real rhythm of just uh enjoy like the pleasure of running and it's really enjoyable and um i'm, I'm interested in nutrition and diet mm. and i like cooking and food but on kind of old techniques so like interested in like soaking of grains and kombucha and sourdoughs and making pickles kind of like this traditional way of understanding right. and, and combining of foods and also being aware of the moment and being present like being really focused on the activity that i'm doing so mm-hmm. rather than rather than doing an action thinking of the future or reminiscing of the past i try to be really present in that thing that i'm doing Right. I'm still learning how to be a better dad, learning how to spend time with my daughter and enjoy that time with her. Yeah. Um, And I'm trying to, I guess I'm trying to, my work I feel is going through a transition because I, what I'm recognizing now is that I feel that a lot of my work comes from I don't know, like a place of anger or... Oh, interesting. I, th- I think my work is quite aggressive. It doesn't seem it on the outside, but I think the humor, like it's... The, yeah. there's, a lot, there's a lot of irony and there's a lot of... Um, I don't know, there's, there's a certain... There's something in it that, that I can... That, that I'm sent to myself when I make it that's... It's made almost like in retaliation or to antagonize or to, huh. and I know that the work is, is, it doesn't seem like that. No, it doesn't so, at all. So, so I'm trying to, I'm, I'm wondering if it's possible to make work from a different place. So I'd like to, to make work that's, because for example, what I've noticed is that irony and children don't mix very well. Like I don't, I don't like to be sarcastic or ironic mm. as mm-hmm. a dad. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking like the way if if you're sincere and in the moment and I don't know open to all possibilities, then good things happen. And I'm trying to make work with that frame of mind. That's so interesting. I mean, I never would have thought about your work as angry or aggressive. It's definitely ironic. It's definitely humorous. I think there's a certain calmness to a lot of it, especially the the kind of series on uh, on balancing where you kind of, uh, you have the shelves where the objects are, are balancing the shelves yeah. or even the desk where they're bounced or even the yeah. bookshelf that kind of sags in the middle. Um, there's there is a certain unease about those but they're they're yeah. strangely calming they're they're quiet almost uh i'm i'm curious what you know to approach work from that other side from from a side of sincerity how does that how does that change the output or or is that something you're still kind of working through <laughs> right now yeah i'm kind of um i don't know i don't i don't have the answer but the, so the work hopefully just gradually because i don't think there won't be a on off moment in the work i think it will be like a gradual right but i think that tension hopefully will start to change so i think the work will i don't know um i I i've like 50 things going through my mind now thinking about your work and and kind of what you just said um i'm 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 I apologize if this is a, again, another kind of reductive question, but I'm thinking about all of this. I'm thinking about the context of kind of where your work is seen. Do you think about audience or viewer uh, kind of in in that 
process or how someone kind of encountering your work, what they take away from it? Yeah, a, lo- a lot of it I leave to chance. So mm. I've always kind of maintained like the idea of an open studio. And I don't leave my door open, but I feel like I publish. I try to share things on my website. I've done that for, for a long time. Yeah. And um, it's... And I invite contributions or comments or um, like I'm interested in not in collaboration but in participation. So if people mm-hmm. see things, they can contribute to it mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. or participate in, in building of something. Um, but I don't think of the audience so much. I just feel that if you make something that yourself connect with. Yeah. Then surely there must you're not you're not be the only one in the whole world that can actually this thing. Surely right. somebody right. and it only needs to find one other person and then it's worked. There's a conversation. Right. You know, so if it's if it's a conversation with yourself, then it's almost like it's that thing if a tree falls in a forest and there's no one there, does it make a sound? Right. The minute there's another person, then everything makes sense. That, that, that then is a conversation. So I only need an audience of one and then I'm happy. Right. And and if that one person tells somebody or it gets passed on, that's that's even nicer because then it becomes more economical. Like the the cost or the time involved in making something, the more people see it, somehow the more value yeah. it has, and it it it's just a it, yeah. I, I mean, you know, this is probably something that's that's very obvious, but uh, you know, I kind of just made the connection to earlier when you're talking about kind of taking these ideas and, and turning them into objects or into material is a way to almost get them out of your head. That's almost that kind of first step in that conversation, you know, that is almost the objects themselves, uh, you know, or the work itself is the, the way to start the conversation. Otherwise they are just, you know, these ideas <laughs> that, that you're yeah. just kind of playing with yourself. Yeah. It's, it's a way to invite somebody else in to the conversation, I guess. Yeah, that's right. And then I found by publishing things on, on my website, then, you know, then, then for example, this podcast, this is a way of sharing ideas. So this is a way of talking about things, but it's right. also becomes its own thing also, doesn't it? And right. like I can describe works in this podcast. So, so if a listener hears the things we describe, then they don't necessarily need to see it because the description is enough. Right. Um, and then I use the work sometimes with students if I'm teaching as examples of things. Mm-hmm. Um, I do, I, you know, I, I would like, sometimes I make shows in galleries or museums. I'd like to do that more often. And then I make books. So there's, I have like a myriad of different ways of sharing things. And so, some, some works are more appropriate for one medium than another. But it's, um, so I just kind of put things into the world the most economical and easy way possible. You mentioned teaching. How, how, how much is teaching a part of your work or how much teaching do you do? Right now I've not taught for probably two years, okay. but I still feel like a teacher. So okay. I, you know, if I'm often I'll get emailed by students that are writing something or researching and I'll kind of engage with them. Um, I, I think I'll, I think teaching will always be a part of my practice, but there'll be, perhaps long periods where I don't do any. Do right. I don't literally go into a university. Um, but it's a lot of fun. Like the, the most fun I had teaching, I think, was at UAV in Venice. So, okay. And, that, and it was, uh, so the invitation was just great. It's like there's a, there was a mixed class of MA students from photography, fine art and design oh, and architecture. Interesting. So like four, four different uh, disciplines. And I had them for three months and I could do anything I wanted and I wasn't accountable for anything so I just got <laughs> given a big studio and this group of students and it was it was brilliant it was like a, a dream come true just having these conversations with a mixed diverse yeah. group of people and then exploring things and um it, yeah that was like the ultimate teaching experience and I'd like I'd like to do that type of thing more often but yeah. yeah, I mean, that reminds me, I, I was going to ask if you were kind of teaching in design departments or, or kind of what type of students you were working yeah. with. But but what you just described reminded me of um, Robert Irwin uh, in in that book about him um, seeing, seeing is forgetting the name of the thing one sees. Do you know this book? No. Um, where, you know, Robert Irwin basically did something similar where where he was kind of teaching conceptual art and working with artists and stuff. And basically, he had this idea 
called being available in response where he would just go to a school or go to a group of people uh, basically with nothing prepared and just see what was on their minds and what they needed and this idea of just being available to them and then the discussions in the work that kind of came out of that and it sounds like exactly what what your experience was like yeah very similar yeah but I, I just thinking of myself as a student that would be a wonderful teacher to have had wouldn't it Do you know yeah. just to yeah probably I, quite scary also but but yeah what a great yeah i mean i i've started teaching more and more and it's become more and more central to my work, I think, is is being in the classroom. And I, I've done some experiments in uh, kind of dialing up and down my level of control over the class. Uh, yeah. And when I step back and let the students kind of lead the class, they always get to much more interesting ideas than, <laughs> you know, than if I'm standing up front <laughs> directing yeah. the class. Yeah. I guess this idea of like relinquishing control is is really it's a fun thing, isn't it? It's scary, but yeah. I, I like that um, the unknown. So if um, you know, kind of not completing something, so either the viewer or the user has to add to it in some way. Teaching where if you if you begin, it's like this. No, our conversation we don't know where we're going to end, and that's the fun the fun thing of a conversation or a discussion. Right. Whereas if you came with the same questions and it was like. I think like one answer leads to the next question that then leads to the next. So it's, it's kind of fluid. And, uh, I think teaching, I feel kind of is best when it's a, when it's kind of conversational like that. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Did you, yeah. so were you teaching when you were kind of teaching in school settings, were you teaching mostly in design departments or what kind of students did you have? Yeah. Ma mainly design. So yeah, mainly within graphic design. And what? But, I, but, I, but I, I did always. It's funny because um, when I was teaching in the design department, often the people that would invite me would see me as an artist. So it's like mm. knowing that I have a design background, um, and the and the same with the students. The students thought he's uh, being taught by someone who's not a designer. It'll be interesting. <laughs> right. And then <laughs> the times when I have taught in art departments, they see me as a designer. Right. Of course. So now I, I really like this, um, wherever I am, I'm always the opposite. Yeah, yeah. And it's, it's quite a nice position to take, you know, so I'll, I'll kind of happily accept that position. I, I'm, I'm the, the, the black sheep in that environment. Right. And therefore, I don't know, you get a different, um, I don't know, it's, it feels less restrictive. I, I didn't even think, I, the reason I asked that is because I was going to ask, as somebody who's had a very non-traditional design career, you know, if we want to call it that, what, what it's like for you to be in the classroom with designers, how much of that comes in. So it's interesting that they see you as an artist. I didn't think about the other side of artists seeing you as a designer. Something, and the reason I'm asking this is something I've been thinking about a lot is I, I came up in a design education system that was very traditional it was very rooted in the Bauhaus um, modernism was good design everything that was not modernism was bad design it was rule-based you go and you work for a company uh, where you have clients and I feel like so much of my career post-graduation has been trying to fight against that or find other ways to use these skills these design skills in other contexts and now as a teacher, I'm trying to find the balance of that in the classroom of how, how, much, how much is it my job or how much can I kind of show these students that design traditionally is one thing, but it can also be all of these other things. Is that something that you've thought about or is that something that comes up when, when you're teaching or even in your own work, I guess? Yeah, I'm. I'm, I'm going to try to answer your question, but in a that's fine, indirect way. Okay, perfect. So, if you apply like your graphic, like modernist, Boho style graphic design education to cooking, mm -hmm. or to diet, or to the way you organize your living space, then. I think it's really appropriate. Like the, the there's a sense, 
there's um yeah that process with food is really great that's modernist a a modernist graphic design education and cooking are really compatible (laughs) yeah 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 Yeah, i know what you mean whereas no if you because it's not that if you go to a restaurant and you order some food and when it comes on the plates if it feels that someone's embellished those ingredients and kind of overworked them and balanced things and it's just it looks too fiddly and it's like oh whereas if you're truthful to a process and to ingredients and just let whatever happens you work with good produce from a good source provider and you know the things are good you don't need to do too much to them right. the flavors are there and it's just great you don't need to try too hard and for me that's kind of so I'm not sure how it goes back to your question, but so in my own practice, I feel that I, my education was, it sounds very similar. Um, and I, I think I draw upon those things every day in almost everything I do. Um, but the outcome doesn't appear at all like modernist right. graphic design. The process is the same, but the conclusion is different. And the only reason it's different is because I'm not making posters or book covers. And the way that we see modernist design is like the poster that's in the background from the Helvetica. <laughs> right, right. You know. Yeah. But if you if you break that poster down and, and understand kind of the way it was made, not 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 the aesthetic of the poster, but the process and the ideology behind it. And if you applied that to appearance your your appearance mm-hmm. em- embodies that same philosophy of that poster do you know what i mean you've got a white t-shirt yeah you've got you feel the same as the you're you're a helvetica person <laughs> I don't, in, appear, in appearance is that a compliment it's not a compliment or uh <laughs> or, yeah. or a criticism it's it's more like a, an observation yeah there's not good or bad I, yeah, I know what you mean. The reason I'm asking is in the interviews that I've read that you had done before, in the talks that I had um, watched uh, and rewatched to prepare for this, y- you, I sense that you you make a conscious effort that design isn't necessarily the thing that you do anymore, um, or that that maybe that kind of definition of design doesn't work for you anymore. Um, would you agree with that before I keep going so I no. don't do another one? It changes every day. So okay. maybe in the, I don't remember the last time that I said that in a lecture, but I think today I wouldn't, I wouldn't be so dogmatic. I, I, I'm kind of whatever the viewers or the audience's observation. Right. That's that's I'm happy to. That's fine. If they see me as a designer, I feel comfortable with that. I did study design, so. That's okay. 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 I mean, so, okay, this, this is interesting then because it kind of gets to what I've been thinking about. And, and another thing I wanted to talk to you about is as I see my own career moving in these different directions, I, I feel like I have a certain, I don't want to let go of that design word, even though my work is moving more and more outside of traditional graphic design. There's still something about that idea of being a graphic designer that feels right to me. And so it's, so my, my question, which now might not make sense, was kind of your relationship to that word and or to that term as a graphic designer and how that kind of, it kind of takes us back to the beginning of the conversation, how that relates to the work you're doing now. Do you know, I don't have a title, because if I think of myself as an artist, I also find that a bit cringy. Yeah, that okay. To call yourself an artist or to call yourself a designer or a graphic, I don't, um, I don't really identify, I'm a, just a person. I'm a person with lots of different interests. Yeah. And I, I try to, I think I, um, I was going to say I work hard to try to do the best I can, but then effort is not sometimes by working hard, you can overdo something. So I don't, I don't always work hard. I try so often try and find out the easiest way of doing something, but I guess I'm, I'm just trying to be a person in the world aware of my actions. Mm. I try to make a contribution by making things, things mm-hmm. which get people mm-hmm. to think about the world in a different way. Sometimes by taking a picture, sometimes by make, by building something, lo- lots of different ways. 
Um, and I share these things in a myriad of ways, websites, yeah. books, conversations like this. Um, and it connects with design. It connects with art. It connects with comedy. It connects with sometimes yeah. music or sound. It connects with lots of different things. Um, sometimes the work looks as though it might have been made by a child. Sometimes you're not sure whether it's been made at all or whether it's just chance yeah. um, or phoned. So there's... Yeah, I'm not, I'm not trying to be anything other than really what I am. <laughs> yeah, I love that. I mean, that was a great, that was a great answer. I feel like that. Um, I I talked to Peter Mendelssohn recently, uh, the book cover designer, and he used a phrase that I that has stuck with me, and I feel like it's kind of what you were just talking about uh, that he got from a book called Department of Speculation, and the term is art monster, where you you're just not. Um, you're not defining yourself by titles or mediums or processes. You just kind of have this compulsion to put things out into the world that weren't there before. And I feel like that actually uh, is a kind of perfect description for what you were just talking about and kind of your way of uh, way of living and, and working. Um, I have just the a couple. Oh, go the ahead. Mon- the monster bit sounds a bit scary to me. <laughs> yeah, maybe it comes back. It comes back to that that aggression you're talking about. Kind of, yeah. In, in your yeah. work. Um, I have, I have just a couple more quick questions to kind of wrap it up. This has been so, uh, so interesting to me. I'm curious, you had started talking about the things that are kind of on your mind now and the things you're thinking about. I'm, and now that I'm thinking about this, you also said you were trying to be more present. So this might not be a good question to ask, but I'm kind of curious about what's next for you or what are the things that are, uh, um, what are the things that you haven't done or, or mediums you haven't worked in or things that you're thinking about that you want to explore more right now? Yeah, I, I, I'm doing one day at a time. Yeah. That's, <laughs> okay. that's so going back to what we've already yeah. described. So I'm trying not to, how do you do that? Um, what, like what's that actually look like? I remind myself quite often during the day to have like certain things like routine things like brushing my teeth mm-hmm. or open every time I open a door and I and I've got maybe like a dozen of these small things where they trigger it's like a moment for me just to concentrate on only that act and it's incredibly difficult if you're yeah. clean because cleaning your teeth takes about three minutes and just if you only think about cleaning your teeth whilst cleaning your teeth your, your mind is constantly kind of thinking about the right. next thing right. the next thing then just keep bringing it back so it's kind of a meditative practice of just focusing on the breath it's the same thing Mm -hmm. and i'm trying to do that with work so when i begin work or thinking about something then you want you jump to the next thing or to the next thing and it's kind of just accepting that the mind races ahead but just letting it do that but being present so letting those things exist and they can but just not not getting distracted by them just staying in the moment to do the thing that you set out to do I love and that, that. that that's what I'm trying to do. That, that's so interesting. I mean, I'm just thinking about how often my mind wanders from from what I'm doing. And so something as simple as opening a door and focusing on that, it sounds so simple. Yeah. Uh, but it also sounds really hard. Yeah. I'm curious if there are books or writers or artists or designers who have kind of really influenced you or or have kind of shaped the way you think what uh design or not design art or not art just kind of people who have kind of really shaped how you think about all of this stuff that we've talked about there are there's a long a long list and i could just like rhyme i've got recite like a list of of names um it feels a bit odd just to, to do that but i guess a lot of the people that I find most inspiring are friends. So I've become friends with them. So I guess going back, if I go back, just so I don't miss anybody, I'm sure I'll miss somebody else. <laughs> yeah, of course. But, but, at, but at college, like a really important teacher was Rupert Bassett. And I think he'd be a brilliant person to interview. Oh, okay. Um, and, and Jeff White. And and then at the RCA, there was John Warsencroft mm. and Rick, Rick Poyner. Oh, yeah. And then at the Walker Arts Center was Andrew Blovelt. Right. And Andrew was a huge, and still is like, um, like a brilliant, yeah. Person. But I, you know, the 
the impact that he's had on my life is immense. Like at the time when I was graduating from the the RCA, I started to work with him at the Walker Art Center. Right. And that was a really, I don't know, looking back, it was, there, there are key, key stages in your yeah. development. And I feel so, I had all these things that I was exploring at college, but it was all college work. Right. And somehow at the Walker, it kind of, it became real. And Andrew just gave me the permission to do that somehow. And, oh, that's nice. And, um, yeah, I, I feel a lot of kind of gratitude and I think he's a, just a brilliant man. Um, and then studying, I, I, I was really lucky both in my degree and MA to have um, people that I was studying with that were that are also great people and yeah. designers. Um, so there's a, there's a big list. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, with books, it's the same. I, and you know, the book that we mentioned at the beginning, the six yeah. years, I guess that's my, that, that's probably the most important book I've ever read. But then like I'm inspired by Yoko Ono, uh, mm. Lawrence Wiener, and then other designers like Ken Garland. Um, oh, yeah. Damn, there's so many people. <laughs> yeah, I think, uh, <laughs> yeah, I think this, that was a great answer. And we brought it back to the beginning with the, uh, the book that kind of set, set you on this journey. Uh, anyway, um, Daniel, this was so this was so interesting to me. Like I said at the beginning, I'm a big fan. I think the work that you're doing is, is kind of endlessly interesting to me, and something that I I just I feel like I've gotten a lot out of. And so it was nice to kind of talk to you about how you think about all these things because I've been admiring you from afar. So thank you so much for doing this. This was this was a blast. Great. Well, thanks very much for the invitation. This episode was recorded on July 26, 2018. Our theme music is by Andy Borgasani. We're on Twitter and Instagram at Surface Podcast. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, and at scratchingthesurface.fm. Thanks for listening.